Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast. We're the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Act for a Post-Consumer World. On the podcast this week, we continue our conversation with Craig Ruglis, who, along with his husband Gary Jackamuck, runs Winnetka Farms in Los Angeles's San Fernando Valley. In last week's podcast, episode 56, we talked about Italian vegetables. This week, Craig tells us about his double-laced Barnabelder chickens, his Muscovy ducks, and we talk about our mutual problems with rats and raccoons. Well, speaking of livestock, we've been yes. we've been talking about vegetables for a long time now. Speaking of livestock, we actually have some of your chickens that are wonderful. Actually, yes. uh, you've been breeding, and yeah, you actually corrected me at the beginning here uh, when I wrote the introduction uh, that I need to say standard double laced Barnevelder chickens, not just Barnevelders, not just Barnevelders. Do you want to say what a standard double laced Barnevelder chicken is and why you chose that breed for your? You said you're doing a breeding program too. Your yes, I have. Yeah, so. I have a. Bre- I have a breeding flock, and when I say standard, it uh, it's the designation that it is a standard heritage breed. That's what that means, and that my breed is standard to or or meets the standard expectation of uh, this type of bird, meaning body type, wing set, so forth and so on. Yeah, like the uh, AKC. It, yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's similar. Yeah. It's similar. It's similar to that. So um, this Barnevelder, it is the the Barnevelder. Uh, oh, well, let me back up. It's double laced. The reason I made that designation or that's uh, to clarify that is because there are single laced Barnevelders, and in it it is uh, it's very specific that this is a double laced Barnevelder, which um, is, uh, in my opinion, a little bit more of a beautiful bird than the single lace because it's just more detailed to their plumage. But the bird originated, the Barnevelder originated in eastern Holland. I, th- I believe the town is uh, uh, Barneveld, and yeah, Barneveld in eastern Holland, and it was it was bred. Oh, I think I want to say the mid nineteenth century uh, for a bird that would take cold temperatures and still give the best possibility of laying eggs through long, dark, cold winters, and which, of course, Eastern Holland had to contend with, has to contend with, and um, it, it became the most famous bird of Holland because it was such a successful strain that came out of the uh, the breeding. Um, so it, it became famous all over Holland. And an interesting story, the Barnevelders of Holland completely disappeared uh, during and shortly after World War II because the people of Holland were starving. They ate all the birds, mm. is the story that I read. Many were lost to the war itself through neglect. People had to flee, you know, whatever. Mm. I don't know all the, the details, but it was, it was the, Amer- the American Barnevelder keepers that repopulated the birds of Holland oh. after World War II. 
and uh, which I think is thing, you know, which is a, a good uh, thing because it is really a fantastic bird. You had asked me once what I think you put a call out. What is the best urban, uh, you know, uh, chicken for bird keep uh, for uh, backyard keeping? And absolutely, it is the it is the barn of elder for many reasons, and it's all the reasons that we wanted and how what led us to this breed is that it will it's very resistant to heat it's very resistant which is strange since it was i guess it's just temperature resistant it's temperature resistant and it does seem strange that it was bred for cold weather but it will endure hot temperatures as well yeah they don't show any signs of heat stress like our old chickens like our, our, our our barred rocks and you know they would they would um you know, they'd pan and wings spread their and, wings yeah. and stand around on hot Sooner. days. And I, I mean, feel so bad. These guys do that. I mean, they I've seen them on a really hot day on the worst days, but they just don't seem to feel it. Right. So no, my my yeah, my flock now, they, you know, they seek shade when it's hot. Typical, you know, action like any bird or human would. Mm-hmm. But they um, I have not lost a bird to heat stress and and it's uh, hot where you are it's hotter than where very, we are very oh yeah very hot oh, no, oh very hot <laughs> parts uh, of your car melt and fall off i understand <laughs> that, yes, it does. yes it has but uh no so they're very resistant to the heat but we also chose it because it's a dual purpose breed it's it's a meat and egg breed so we wanted a bird that since we were going to be in a breeding program we knew we would have extra cockerels which is a young rooster, if somebody doesn't know what that is. And, you know, the dilemma is, what do you do with them? You do not keep them all. And you also do not keep every hen that you raise up in a breeding program. Like choosing genetics when saving vegetable seeds, it is a, it's a process of selecting the best of your flock for the best tr- traits, physical as well as disposition, to develop your flock. And um, so you, of course, you end up with birds that become, you know, they become meat for, you know, the table. So that was the other reason we chose it. We also like the idea that the bird is not an egg factory like a livarno or a leghorn. You know, we didn't want every single hen laying an egg every single day because it just becomes too much. Mm-hmm. You know, you just end up yeah. with too many eggs. And we were willing to give that up uh, because, because our birds do have a large area to forage they 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 uh, they go a little bit lighter on the feed bill because they're able to forage for a lot of bugs and critters under the straw and then coming up to this next cool season a large area um several hundred square feet maybe 200 square feet gets sectioned off and i grow a uh, cool season forage for them which is a, a variety of ryegrass i'm able to let them into that they they will eat it to the ground and then I close it off again and let it regrow. So then they all have access to, to that in the cool season. It's a little tough to do that in the warm season because I don't want to irrigate a lawn. And, um, and, that's, and that, that, that's what it is. I, I, I want the rain, if we, if we get rain, to take care of the forage. But uh, yeah, I know it's a wonderful bird. The other, the other traits that I really liked about it is that the bird is not known to be flighty meaning it wants to stay on the ground. It's content to be on the ground. It will go up to a tall or a high roost, but during the day, it doesn't want to fly over fences and into trees and into the neighbor's yard. And I only have a four-foot fence around, around my uh, chicken run. And the birds are content to stay inside. They, they never, never, ever escape. Some people complain endlessly that their birds are in the street and in the neighbor's yard because, you know, they fly everywhere. Not this bird, and that was the other good thing about the bird that I really liked. And then 
uh, Gloria at Mariposa Creamery, she complimented me. She thought I was crazy when I used to brag about my birds because she just thought, oh, you know, they're just chickens. But she got a bunch of birds that were given to her from a neighbor who was getting out of the, the chicken-keeping endeavor. And she said she was shocked at the behavior of those uh, hatchery birds, how insane they were with their food and how wasteful they were and how disrespectful they were and how much they fought and how they made a mess of everything. And she realized, gee whiz, Craig wasn't crazy. These birds really are well-tempered, well-mannered, content to stay on the ground, and they are not, uh, very importantly, not wasteful of their food and kicking it everywhere and throwing it out of you know, the feeders. And, yeah, it, uh, it's like night and day disposition-wise. We had a bunch of hatchery hens, and they would often fight. Yep. These guys never, I mean, you know, they sorted out the pecking order immediately, and there's never been any big dust-ups for yeah. years yeah. now. Yeah, 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 they're very quiet. Yeah, and generally they're quiet. They very rarely make um, unnecessary noise. They don't make noise for the sake of because they're bored. But it's, uh, yeah, so, no, it's, uh, it's uh, uh, I'm very happy with the, with the birds. It's good because there's not that stress of, like, when we, we had, um, you know, our lowest pecking order bird would get pecked bloody, you know? And that's, oh, that you know, is, I mean, if you're, you're a farmer, then, you know, I've always heard, like, you, you kill that bird and you kill the one who's doing most of the pecking, you know? Yeah, but since we only had four and we're more like pet people, we couldn't do that. So instead we were trying to manage this bad behavior and it was really stressful and, I'm so glad that these ladies just don't do that. Yeah, no, it's, I, I'm glad that those birds have been um, a good experience for you because um, I, you know, I have, um, you know, I have a multitude of hens and I have a main rooster and I have some young cockerels that are coming up and I'm trying to decide, you know, what I'm going to do, you know, as, as you know, going into next year, there will be a, a change. The, you know, uh, I may either replace the hens or the rooster, I'm not sure. That's just the natural progression of maintaining the flock. But um, no, they're very, um, they do not fight amongst themselves. In fact, and, and, and I think uh, what, has, what has come of my flock is that through the selection that, that when, you know, when I've seen a bird that doesn't have a good temperament, that bird doesn't stay. It's I, that, that whatever is in that bird it it's pulled out of the flock so i've reinforced good behavior traits through several years of breeding mm. and so i can hatch out birds or you know on occasion i've had hens hatch out eggs themselves you know by surprise the roosters and all the other hens uh they immediately take to the young birds they just become part of their their family and where i hear people complain and have horror stories that trying to incorporate new birds to an existing flock and the young birds are just attacked relentlessly bloody mm -hmm. it's like i've never had that experience you know and i don't think it's i don't think it's because um i just got lucky i think it's because i originally sought out hatching eggs from two specific flocks one that's maintained in connecticut and one that's maintained in northern california because i did a lot of research and I, and I read reviews and people's experience with these two breeders. And, and these, aren't, these, these aren't hatcheries. These are two people that maintain flocks. So I, I, I bought hatching eggs from them. And every single bird I have to this day 
is a result of that original hatch. Uh, of those, it was two hatches, one from the East Coast, one from Northern California. And that has led to every single bird that I have now. The only thing that I have done uh, recently is the original breeder in Northern California from T- uh, TLS Ranch. She um, sent me some eggs that I have hatched out because, and, and I did this for her a few years ago, you have to, re- you have to sort of juice up your genetics. And um, so what I did was I got eggs from her, and I'm now trying to decide I may choose a rooster that's from her current flock of genetics that I'll incorporate it with my current batch of hens. And it just, it just, it, uh, it, it just, like I said, it just maintains a, a good diversity in your genetics. And it's kind of necessary to do that every few years ago. I did that with her about two or three years ago. She needed some, some, she wanted to reinforce what was going on in my flock genetically into her flock. Because I ha- I was becoming well known that my birds had really good wing set. The roosters had really good wing set because they're sometimes they're known to have a slightly droopy wing. Well, my the wings on my birds were really nice, and everyone was like, you know, was getting a little bit of attention. So she wanted to incorporate that back into her birds, which was really nice because she has done incredible things. She's prize winning with her birds, what she has done, and um, so now I'm going to do that. Her birds are really fantastic. I kind of want to bring it back into my flock. So. I'm very think, happy with them. I think everyone should have a Barnfelder. <laughs> I do too. They're they're amazing. I think a lot of people don't even know that there's this whole world of chicken breeders and specialty stock. I mean, you know, so chickens are things you pick up at the feed store for two dollars each. You know, chicks. Um, you know, right. or, or or there are the catalogs that have all the breeds in them. The I guess the hatchery right. catalogs. Which yeah, is where but the feed store but it's a little from. bit like. Could you make the analogy for people who don't know about this stuff? Is like kind of like the hatcheries are more like puppy farms. Could you say yeah, well, that versus yeah, breeders? You, you could say that. Now there, there, there's you know there are, um, uh, you know I don't want to bash hatcheries, but let's be honest. A hatchery is in the business of selling chicks. So to be in business, it's a commodity. They have to produce as many chicks as possible. So I think. They're just going, they're looking at their genetics potentially as for, um, for productivity, roosters that are very fertile, hens that are very fertile, lots of eggs, pump out babies. For two, pump out eggs for like one or two years, basically. Or yeah. less. Right. I mean, or you know, they're less. less. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they're not necessarily looking at a bird for its body shape, its standard breed features, just Dis- overall health, like it's, behavior, it's, yeah. it's behavior and it's yep. disposition. They're not necessarily looking at behavior is so important when you're when you're breeding animals. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, it, it is very important. And one of the things that's that's really critical, especially when you're breeding roosters. I mean, uh, you know, uh, chickens are that roosters can be very dangerous if you have a rooster that attacks. Mm-hmm. especially if it attacks children. So you don't want to breed that into your flock. Now, you do want a rooster that is dominant, protective of the flock, protective of the girls, keeps an eye on the sky when the hawk flies over, all of those traits. You don't want you know, a, you know, a wet dish rag of a rooster, but that doesn't mean you have to accept a violent rooster. And I don't know if they necessarily look for those features when you've got birds in cages for breeding purposes. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. 
you know, uh, but I do know that when you go to a specific a breeder who specializes in a specific breed that and there are good ones and bad ones just like any other, but there are breeders they look for behavioral traits. They look for standard breed body shapes and uh, you know, wing set and you know, uh, all of the things that go into maintaining the quality and the um, the, the the appropriate traits for the breed, um, along with the behavior, and so that's why I sought out finding birds from a uh, on this for this breed. I wanted to go to a breeder because I read lots of horror stories that people were doing strange thing, crossing into their barn of elders to get the eggs to be really dark brown, mm. which meant they were going to uh, the, the dark copper moran, and that if you were, if you were just buying a bird but weren't going to have a breeding program, you wouldn't have noticed that three years down the line, you start seeing the traits of a secret cross to get a, a dark egg color. All of a sudden, your birds stop looking like you know, they start reverting back to something they shouldn't be. And so I was reading all these things and these complaints, and I'm like, I'm just going to go with two respected breeders um, so that I'm starting out with the best possible. You know, that's that was my theory. And I'm very happy I did because I, I lucked out. I got two really good roosters and a group of really good hens, and they, they were the um, – you know, they're the ones that just set me on the path to the, you know, the flock that I still have. But I have to, I'll just, I'll just drop this. One thing that I, I'm kind of toying with is that Trisha, there is, there is a variety of Barnevelder. It's a double laced Barnevelder and it's called a double laced blue Barnevelder. And the bird did not exist in America. It was only in Holland. And this bird, instead of it being brown and black, instead of the black, the black is actually steel blue mm. and brown and she being an animal uh science major and understanding genetics she bred the double lace blue i mm. now have two double lace blue roosters oh. that are just jaw-dropping mm. in their color and i may have a second flock of just blue double lace blues and standard double laced. i don't know we'll see how much I want to take on, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really fond of the bird. It's a beautiful bird. I couldn't, I could not recommend it more highly for um, a small backyard flock for all the things that I said, for all the reasons. I, I did want to get to, uh, I had to thank you actually for inviting me to attend a two-day poultry health seminar that was put on by UC Davis and the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Yeah, was which was amazing. It was a bunch of uh, avian vets and other experts talking about diseases and behavior and all kinds of things. And I know that we both came away from it with some ideas about biosecurity because there yes. are there are some avian influenza problems in California and Marek's disease and a number of other highly communicable chicken diseases. And I wondered if you had some thoughts about uh, biosecurity and some of the things that you changed after we both went to that conference. Well, um, I, yes, I did. It was by, a, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we got into that because it was, it, I, it was just kind of an off the cuff comment from the director of the ag program at Pierce to me. He like, Hey, you should come to this thing. And we got in, I was very excited about that. And it was, it was, uh, it was a really great long two days and learned a lot 
And But yes, the biosecurity is something that I have been really kind of pushing in uh, for a few years now. And w- w- the first thing that I changed <laughs> a couple years ago was that I actually stopped hosting chicken meetups because I was not seeing uh, biosecurity being taken seriously by enough people in Los Angeles. And I saw the, the, I saw, uh, the spread of Merrick's disease. Um, when I started keeping chickens, their, their Merrick's disease was not on the table. And then all of a sudden, it started. it was everywhere. And the only reason we started getting uh, uh, an increased rate of occurrence was people were spreading it. The chickens aren't spreading it. The people are. Because chickens move because people move the chickens from place to place. And so I, I finally just clamped down and I stopped hosting because I did not want to lose five or six years worth of breeding to one person who would walk it in on their shoes. And um, I now I'm kind of like my pen, the pendulum is sort of swinging back and there, there are things that I have learned to, to kind of stop the, you know, the, trans, the transfer of disease from elsewhere in by uh, taking steps of, um, you know, cleaning shoes and so forth. But um, one, thing that I, one thing that I immediately did, because I, I used to have, and well, I still technically, I still do, have a breeding flock of Muscovy duck. And boy, I couldn't. I cannot recommend them more highly. Yeah, I or, wanted to talk about the ducks. So yes. I'm glad you're kind of sliding and that in there. It, it is. I, yes, it is. A fan, <laughs> they are fantastic, and I absolutely love the ducks. The Muscovy duck, uh, or Muscovy. I'm not sure which is the proper way to say it. I always say Muscovy, but um, it's fantastic duck because it is a dual purpose. It's a meat and egg breed, and for those out there who cannot keep a rooster because of of crowing. You can keep a breeding flock of Muscovy because they do not quack. They do not make noise. They will fly, so you have to clip wings because they'll be airborne and up on the roof of your house. Um, but they also, from my experience, have a tendency to know that we live there. So they don't go far. They like to come back. If they, if they do fly somewhere, they, they always came back. You know, They never really left. But um, very easy to maintain. They're very productive on eggs. The eggs are absolutely delicious if you feed them properly like any other bird. But um, it's a fantastic bird. But those, the, the bird, those, I used to keep them with the chickens. But after this two-day course, I realized for the health of the chickens and for the health of the ducks, I needed to separate them. Because the dispositions, while they could co-mingle, the ducks were a bit disruptive to the chickens. Because the ducks are very greedy with the food and they would take all the food from the chickens if I brought food in. But the other reason is the, the, the ducks themselves, from my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, Eric, but I, I, that the, the ducks are susceptible to contracting avian influenza faster than a chicken, but they can then in turn give it to your chickens. Right. So, um, so if you live in a place where you have wild ducks that come and land in your yard which I have neighbors out here who have chickens and they have a pond and wild ducks will just appear. They're at extreme risk of avian influenza this fall with migrating birds. So, you know, for those out there who have chickens and have wild ducks that visit them, do whatever you can to keep them away because they could very well bring in disease. So, by the way, so all the Muscovy duck 
which, you know, if you want to, we could go into more details of why I love them and why I love my flock. Uh, those were all moved across to our friend and and uh, also urban homesteader uh, fixer across the street. And he lives in a house with the barn and all the ducks are there and he's going into production for duck eggs. He's building the flock. I think we've got 40 some ducks over there now. And that's all going to be for duck egg production. And he has a few hens, but he, all the ducks are there and all the main chickens are here now. So I feel like a little bit of separation was important for some for biosecurity between the breeds. And um, But the, the other immediate thing I did that I was necessary for the ducks is that I needed to have a kind of, not a pond, because this is not a, wa- this is not a typical waterfowl. They're a land bird, but they do like water. They prefer like a little bit of a stream. But we had a large basin of water out for the ducks because they like to splash and they would drink from it. But that attracts raccoons, which in turn, the raccoons will bring cholera. Do you remember? Cholera? Oh, I forgot about that what? part. Oh, yeah. Yes. Now, <laughs> it's not a cholera that humans can get, oh, okay. but it is, a, it is a strain of cholera that will wipe out your hens. And I thought, oh, my God, that's a, besides the avian influenza, that was reason number one to separate my ducks from the chickens is so I could eliminate that water mm. that attracted the raccoons. And so, uh, so now what I did was all the water source, um, I just picked up some barrels and we're going to go to the, uh, the nipple waterers, mm-hmm. um, for the hens. But what we've done for the hens, um, to control it from wild birds is, you know, to eliminate any open basins of water or those, you know, those gravity feed waters and all that. Right. So that way it will be one more way that we eliminate the raccoons. Uh, and eliminate wild birds for, who are also wanting to drink out of the chicken waters. But what we're but what we're doing is, and I got this idea from Fixer, is I got two um, I got a 55 gallon you know food grade barrel, and it's going to be it's going to be gravity fed, and uh, it's gonna it's gonna go from 55 to a five gallon to cut down on on the psi um, to feed this, but. The reason we'll always have this large stock of water in when we have our next earthquake and my water is shut off for a week, I'm not bo- feeding my birds bottled water. Mm-hmm. You know, I've got, I've got, you know, a week or more worth of water in storage for the birds at all times. Um, you know, we have our water for, you know, in storage for earthquake, but it didn't, it never occurred to me about the birds. Yeah. So that's what, so that's what we're doing there. But eliminating that standing, well, okay, that's the wrong word. I didn't mean standing water. Eliminating that basin of water that I had, and it was large, it was four by four. And what I would do is I would change it out every few days to, and then I would water my fruit trees with it. You know, I, I could attach a hose to it. There was a spigot, and I could drain it, and I could water the cherry trees or artichokes or whatever. And it was really good duck water it's really great because mm. it's dirt. It's dirty. Ducks can be kind of dirty. They're, they're messy. But that duck water was really great to water with. And I thought, ooh, hi, I've got this really great <laughs> you double use. stacking function. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought, well, I've got double use of water here. You know, this is really great. But then I learned at this class, you're going to attract raccoons, which will bring cholera <laughs> because the raccoons get it in the water. They drink the water. They sneeze into the water. <laughs> the chicken comes along, drinks that water, and picks up cholera. And they're, oh, dead. they're dead. So that was the that was a that was one of the big things that I got out of this this two day class was to to eliminate that water because of the raccoons. And then also the raccoons 
just before I did that, I lost one of my blue Barnevelders oh. to the raccoon. Oh, no. I think it was the morning of the class, wasn't it? Yes, it was. That's, That's right. right. I remember yeah. came in and told you that I lost the bird. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I had three b- blue Barnevelders. Well, one of them was taken by a raccoon, and I found the dead bird ripped apart in the water. Oh. That's oh. what ra- raccoons do. You know, yeah, they, yeah. Take, they, they take the food. food and they sit in the water and they clean it and, you know, that's what they do. So that was the other thing is to eliminate that water so you don't have the, so you're not attracting the raccoons. Doesn't mean a raccoon isn't still going to walk through at night and sneeze on something that the, you know, but you, you want to eliminate the things that will attract the problem. So the ducks moved because I thought if the ducks are going to be susceptible to contracting it faster than the chickens, and then in turn give it to my chickens, I thought we need to isolate them. Eliminating that water, eliminating the occurrence of raccoons for cholera, that was the other thing that um, I immediately did. And then the other thing that I'm going to do is, and I have to figure it out, is because one thing that I learned in that class is about the whole idea of that Chickens can learn to step on devices to open up feed bins. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The, yeah, we've been I'm looking into that, that, too. too. We, yeah. we asked yeah. for some reader feedback, and a lot of our readers use those. Yes. Treadle, and, treadle feeders. Treadle, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. Well, the, the other thing that, we, that I, I, have to, I have to play with and do a little research is uh, a door that will maybe automatically open but has... I don't know what you would want to call it. Do you know those devices that they hang on a walk-in refrigerator? It's like those plastic sheets that oh. when you walk, walk oh, yeah. through, kind of automatically close behind you. Yeah, with like magnet around it or something? Well, or not something? magnet, but they're sort of like, it's heavy plastic and it's sort of split. It sort of looks like vertical blinds that you yeah. would have on a window. Yeah. Okay, well, it's yeah. meant to keep the cool air in. It's like, I bet there's something I could create so that a chicken can walk through it, but it's going to close behind them and keep out the sparrows and the wild birds from eating their food because the ba- those birds find their way in. Mm-hmm. And so it's like one more step to try to keep the wild birds out because those wild birds will pick up the avian influenza by drinking at a neighborhood pond where there's wild ducks and then bring it to me. Mm-hmm. So you ha- it's about eliminating the avenues of transmission. And so that's, that's, you know, that's one more thing that I, I have to, you know, I have to kind of put our, put our mind to that and figure out a way that the birds can go in and out, but still eliminate the wild birds from getting in the coop. Because they're very crafty. They get in there and they want to sit and eat all their food, which is expensive. I don't want to feed wild birds, you know, organic <laughs> feed. Right. <laughs> and not mention the mice as yeah, well. Yeah, mice and rats. That's yeah. our problem here. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah. I have the same problem. You know, it's, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's the life of the farmer. It never ends. There is, you know, it's really, it was really interesting when I say the life of the farmer, whether you are a 500 acre farm or you're on a 10th of an acre in the city, you're constantly battling something. Mm-hmm. Is that, I mean, always, you know, yeah. always in some battle with something <laughs> that wants to take your last apple you know or you know it's, it's and we just... should tell you about our our unfortunate grape arbor oh <laughs> well, there's a yeah there's that and i had a confrontation with an angry mama raccoon last oh, week you've got to be really careful uh, well yeah it, 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 we, it was actually a stare down 
in the backyard, <laughs> and it wasn't even dark yet. So, oh, oh my gosh! Well, she had been letting her babies romp in my um, vegetable uh, bed, vegetable bed yeah. while I was gone. So, yeah, I've, I lost a vegetable bed yet again oh, to the raccoons. raccoons. And then the babies, when Eric came across them doing this, the babies ran off, but Mama just stood there and gave him the finger. You know, so yeah. <laughs> well, she was being protective, but yeah. um, you know. Uh, a high pressure nozzle on the garden hose, mm. kind of spray her a little bit. She'll mm. probably yeah. run away. But you don't want to get near them because, uh, you know, they'll attack and, you yeah, know, be exactly. ra- ra- I, you know, I imagine rabies would be the first concern, right? Yeah. 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 Right. So, right. yeah, it's, there's always something. There, there is always, <laughs> you know, I've, I have squirrels that want to eat every single bit of fruit that oh, yeah. produces. Between the raccoons, the squirrels and the rats, what, what, what do we get? Nothing. You know? I've kind of given oh. up on fruit, but... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's kind of pointless. Yeah, it can be. Especially stone fruit, actually. They they don't seem to bother the pomegranates for some reason, but everything else is gone. (laughs) We found a a raccoon sitting in our fig tree eating green figs. During the day, the cat was looking out the window having a complete fit. I've never seen the cat so excited. And this fig um, grows right underneath our bedroom window. And I went to see what the cat was looking at. Middle of the day, fat raccoon sitting in the in the crook of the tree eating these green things unripe mission unripe figs. mission figs and the and not even soft green i mean like hard little green immature figs and the cat so then me and the cat are staring at it and it's just munching and staring back at us and i yell for eric and eric comes and all three of us are staring at this we could touch it it was so close and finally, finally, I was kind of fascinated by it because I mean, it was just to be so close to this raccoon and it just didn't care. And finally, Eric just went, hey. <laughs> and the raccoon was like, oh, all right. And it put down the fig and wandered away. <laughs> you know, years ago, I had a friend move into this beautiful old, like 100-year-old converted uh, Victorian house in Pasadena. It had been converted to apartments. And he was on the top floor kind of like under the, the, you know, the, the, under the gables of the roof, so to speak. Mm. And when he moved in, the landlord told him, now be sure you never leave that kitchen window open when you're not here. Uh And there were, he was like, well, why? I mean, he's like, well, the other windows you're cool, but this window, because there's that roof line out there, the previous tenant left it open and went to work and the raccoons came in and ransacked the guy's kitchen. (laughs) Literally came in. They, Opened cabinet doors, ripped everything open, <laughs> and when he and it was the the guy came home and the raccoons he saw them like run out the door or out the window. <laughs> it's like they're very they're very crafty. They're very crafty creatures, and and uh, I'm surprised it's not a pet. I don't know. Maybe people have domesticated them, but um, oh, yeah, you I'm, should hear the story of Japan. They tried. That's a, whole oh, other, that's a that's sad, whole sad tale. Yeah. Perhaps the chubs of another podcast. When there was, <laughs> okay. there was a children's, an American children's book called like Ricky the Raccoon or something like that that became very popular in Japan. And raccoons aren't native to Japan, and so there was a fad for pet raccoons. And apparently, the raccoons didn't um, make such great pets because people started releasing them to the wild when they got you know mature and probably nasty oh, <laughs> and thus begins a, a tale of tragedy but maybe we'll save that for another you guys google it people <laughs> google it raccoon raccoons japan podcast. not pretty <laughs> anyways craig uh we didn't even scratch the surface because i realized we didn't even talk about the unique quality of your neighborhood having been a historical sort of homesteading poultry raising place winnetka oh. So the maybe, Weeks, yeah, the Weeks Colony. Yeah, it was a development for 
for people to keep tiny farms. So it's kind of interesting history there. Yeah. You're actually on your house isn't that, but the land is part was originally part of one of those little homesteads. Yeah, we were part of the the weeks. Yeah, this whole area was Winneka was uh, started as the Weeks Colony, the Weeks Poultry System, it was called. Yeah, there's still some of the original houses and original poultry uh, barns still exist here and there. But the soil, but besides that, the soil here is also really good. It's a very deep, really great farm uh, growing region. Uh, The land that we're actually on, this the development of houses built in the very early 50s, this was actually all one large walnut grove. And walnuts, we have, of course, uh, the native black walnut that grows everywhere in our neighborhood, and they do very well. Plus, some of the original walnuts, are, uh, walnut trees are still alive in some neighbor's yards, still produce walnuts after all these years. You know, it's this was uh, the West San Fernando Valley was the rancho, then it became wheat growing region. It was Shadow Ranch was 9,000 acres of wheat at one time and then it got divided up and became a lot of walnuts and grapefruits and poultry farms and then tract houses. <laughs> What's cool though is that you've got good zoning for well, your, your residential agriculture. Residential agriculture. You can have roosters. You can have all sorts of right, yes. bees. So our residential agricultural zoning would allow uh, it's step well I should say as long as you have a separation of distance to your neighbor's residences, you know, that their actual house, I could have any animal but a hog. Oh, I was about I, to say, can you have a hog like Uncle Luigi? <laughs> no, I wish I could. I cannot have a hog. But if I, seriously, if I wanted to have a dairy cow and bring in bales, I could have a dairy cow. I can have, you know, I have, you know, I have neighbors that have goats and there's miniature horses on the street. More and more roosters. It's really interesting. Over the last few years, I'm not exactly sure which of my neighbors have roosters, but I hear roosters in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, I, maybe I inspired that. I don't know. But there's definitely still small livestock, you know, of course, fixer across the street with the rabbits and the ducks and the chickens. But um, but absolutely, this this zoning is um, it's a it's a it is a throwback to it to a time before the valley when the valley was first being developed, when they wanted to maintain it as um, hot, you know, hobby farms. But the zoning is not just for hobby. We are zoned. For row crops, berry crops, stone fruits, any any vegetable matter that you can grow, it's legal to grow it and sell it. Uh, I'm just not able to have a farm stand. Um, I couldn't have a, you know, it would be outside of the zoning to have, you know, to open up the doors and have a farm stand. But um, I, it was legal for me to grow vegetables and sell it to forage and, and the press restaurant and do farmer's markets. And which I I did do um, at first, and then, well, like a lot of things, it became a very expensive hobby, <sighs> which which was depressing because I really enjoyed that that period, but you know how long can you do something where you know the it money not, the, right, the money flows right. out but never comes back. But That's, the cool things you have all these things going, and if you drove by your house and your and through your neighborhood, you would really never know that that all this is going on it otherwise it looks like just a normal san fernando valley suburban yeah. community yeah it, no you're absolutely right it does Un, well on un, you know unlike uh, some of my neighbors you know the front yard 
Oh well, yeah, you've done the front yard called. too, right? Oh it's, yeah, the front yard productive. is utilized, and it's yep. you know it's citrus and avocados. But the other thing that we've done in the front yard that I'm I'm actually very proud of, and as as time goes on, it becomes even more beautiful, is is something that you see. It's very common in Italy, uh, and it's common in like old school Italian neighborhoods here. But um, the driveway, which of course is that we have this enormous driveway, it's twenty feet wide and forty feet long. It's, you know, above, it's kind of wasted space. So the entire thing is covered with this very large arbor that we're growing grapes on. Oh. And the, the grapes, uh, so it's, once again, I, and I always love the concept of anything that is double duty. It will give us shade for the cars that we park on the driveway, and it's going to produce grapes. And I'm really getting my first crop this year, a really quite a large crop of grapes that are ripening as we speak. So I have to figure out what I'll do with them. Because I'm growing, actually, the, the grape that I'm growing is the Mission grape, which was actually the very oh, historic yeah. grape, first yeah. wine grape brought to the Americas. And it um, doesn't make a great wine, so I think I may turn it into, um, I may do, you know, I have white pomegranate that are ripening. I may do a pomegranate grape jelly or, uh, so, I don't know, syrup, something. I'll do something with them. I'll figure it out. I'll just, I'll make something up. <laughs> there you go. It's very exciting. It's beautiful to look at. And, you know, when it was first going up, of course, my neighbors were like, what are you doing? What's the posts for? You know, they, they, they couldn't imagine. And then they saw, you know, the, the wood on the top go up and the wires. And they were like, huh. But now that they see the grapes on it, I just a week ago, some people walking their dog early in the morning, I heard them pointing. I heard them talking and pointing at it. I saw them saying how beautiful that is. And I would hope to inspire other people to do the same thing because it really is really is quite beautiful. You know, I haven't seen it. Yeah. Arbor covered, you know, with grapes on it. It's very, very pretty, but it's practical. It's going to produce something. So it's uh, something that I'm really proud of that we've done because it's, you know, it's lovely to look at and it's going to be useful. Yeah. So it's um, there's always always something changing. Something gets taken out. Something new goes in. I try something different. That's, you know. I'm very fortunate to have the space. You know, one of the big things that's going to change is, and it's it's uh, it's all about expenses. But eventually, it'll be rolled out. Is the the area where the greenhouse is, and the area adjacent to it is all going to be converted to aquapon or uh, yeah, aquaponics. Oh, and oh. Um, very excited about that. So you know, that'll be that's going to. This is this is a concept that I think is could really be useful in urban settings um, because it produces a fish product, which is edible. So there's your protein. And then the water from the system that the fish live in waters the system that grows vegetables. And I just think it's the best of all worlds that in such a compact space, a lot of food can be produced. Uh, Not only vegetable foods, but also protein foods. And I know people that that not only do they have a fish, some do catfish, some do tilapia. Um, There's another fish that escapes my memory right now, which the other variety that is used. But also crayfish. Oh, crayfish. There's systems, like you have to design a system that the water goes through and there's levels of cleansing the water. And crayfish can be part of this, this sort of vertical system that the water goes through. So it's like, well, how lovely would that be to go out and harvest crayfish mm-hmm. and <laughs> have that for dinner <laughs> right out of your backyard? Nice. And this is a system that could be done 
in almost, you know, you can do a system that would fit inside, you know, a, a two-car garage that would be very productive for a family of four. You know, you would never have to buy lettuce. You, it's really, so I'm really fascinated by how efficient uh, the system can be in, in relative to the size of the area that it would utilize. And it's also great because in an urban setting, as you know and have written about, you might have soil that is just chock-a-block full of lead, mm-hmm. you know, or you might have concrete. Mm-hmm. You know, you might not have soil at all. You might live on a hill that's nothing but DG, like Eagle Rock, you mm-hmm. know. But if you have some flat area, you this is a system that can be adapted to so many different adverse uh, situations where traditional gardening or raised bed gardening is not going to work. Yeah, you know, I just remembered we have a local aquaponics expert here who runs a shop called the King's Roost, and I'll I, I'll just have him on the podcast. So we can talk. Oh, I did. You know what? I you know I knew about that shop, but I didn't know that he was knowledgeable in the field. That's he's got great. some he set sells, up outside. He sells the systems there. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. so you can go look at what he's got yep. set up. Yeah, you can look at what he has set up. He's I done it go, for a while, I, you know, too. I haven't, I haven't seen his shop since he's been open, but I've heard a lot of good things about yeah, it. He's yeah, a nice he's, guy. he's nice guy. I do have to say one thing, though, back up to the arbor, which <laughs> we were, Kelly and I were kind of laughing. Yeah, and our, our, our regular readers are laughing right now, too. Because, because we just did a blog post about our disaster. failed grape arbor because it became a giant rat feeder. And, I, <laughs> <laughs> and what, what was surprising... <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, 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 listen. This is surprising. Like I, I thought. I mean, going in, I was like, "Well, we're gonna lose. We're gonna lose grapes to squirrels and rats, obviously, right?" But I thought naively that they would just take the grapes and go, right? And we just would have less crop. What they do, little, <laughs> they sit. Uh, they sit up on the rafters and they they suck the the pulp out of the grapes and they spit the skins on the ground. So there's this <laughs> tremendous, sticky, fermenting mess all over our patio. I think there's actually a way around it, though, because we have we actually have two grapes on the arbor. One is a wine grape, and the other is Vitus californica, the wild sort of California yeah. grape. And that one produces, like, prodigiously, like, tons and tons of tiny grapes. And that's yeah. what the rats are going for. So I think... With the larger wine grapes, you might have to cage some of them off. That's the only thing. I just I don't say. want your your cars to be covered yeah, with grape skins. Exactly. <laughs> it's going to well, be. You know, I have, well, I have to tell you, I haven't. You know, I have these enormous clusters of grapes um, ripening now, and I had, I have the same uh, variety of grape, one plant growing in the back that I'm just kind of for fun that I'm growing in a traditional. I think they call it a candelabra style. It's a mm-hmm. freestanding four-foot-tall plant that's allowed to grow in a big sort of a kind of like a weeping cascade. Mm-hmm. Um, and it produced grapes last year, and I didn't have – I didn't lose any to rats. I don't know what it is. Well, um, we had a few grapes last year as well. This was our first big year, but – Last year, there was no problems. This year, it's insane. And maybe it's just... The, well, they're making more grapes. I think that the vines are really producing Well, and then that calls the rats in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> From the whole neighborhood. Yeah, I think we're feeding the whole neighborhood and ensuring rat survival. <laughs> and, you're sure, and, well, and you've seen the rats. You can yeah, hear can, the... Yes. yes. And mice, too. I photographed them. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. But at night, you can just hear, like, the whole arbor is alive. 
their little feet. <laughs> and squirrels. So the squirrels, the squirrels get, get, get them in too. There, yeah, yeah, everybody. Everybody. Yeah. Everyone's eating. up there. Yeah. There's a so- there's a song in there, Kelly. The the arbor's alive with the sounds of rats eating. Yeah. <laughs> it's the romance of L.A. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, I know an urban tale. <laughs> oh my God. Well, I'm really sorry about about you know about. Uh, Arborgeddon. Um, <laughs> oh, that's, that's it. Really sucks, doesn't it? It really, really sucks when you do something and it attracts every rat from like you know. I'm sure you're getting rats from south of sunset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my rat god, party. south of sunset rats. Yeah, yeah. Oh, those are the bad god. quality rats. Yeah. Okay, but uh, okay, I have to tell you a story, and you're gonna think. Okay, you're gonna think. Okay, you had a bad with rats. My friend who lives in Nevada, she had built this arbor over her patio, and she was so excited to grow grapes on it because she was going to have the fruit and the shade and blah, blah. Okay. And then this little blue moth started appearing and laying eggs, which produced this very kind of beautiful, hairy, little, tiny, sort of quarter-inch long caterpillar. And it is actually called the grape skeletonizer hmm. caterpillar. Because <laughs> no. what it does is the oh. caterpillars, which are in, in the thousands, they completely skeletonize all the leaves oh. and just leave the veins. But there's an interesting thing about this caterpillar is that the caterpillar itself produces cyanide. <laughs> I am not making this up. And she had to finally get rid of all of her vines and she I mean she was in tears because after years of growing them but this because if she they would fall out of the vine on her and she would it the reaction the the reaction to the cyanide was so intense for her some people are not bothered by it, but she. We, we did a lot of research, and and we thought we were crazy when we first discovered that it was cyanide. <laughs> but it it's crazy. So she had a cyanide vine, and um, she had to um, get rid of them. So lucky you, you don't. You just have rats. <laughs> well, we might. I don't know. We're gonna have to talk about this, and yeah, I mean, rats are better than cyanide dripping caterpillars. <laughs> 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 but not much better. It's not. It's oh, not pretty out there, you know. So we we're gonna have to decide what to do. It'll well, be another argument. It'll I, be another I, I, argument. Eric never wants to take anything out, but I'm already like that is too much trouble. You know, let's take them out. You know, there's nothing wrong with wisteria. You know, well, or or passion is, fruit vines. Yeah. So some of our readers recommended. You know, that feeds um, uh, the frippery butterfly. I believe. Well, and, you know the. Pa- I, well, I have to tell you, I had. Pa- you okay. had it. I remember you had it. I had. It looked beautiful. Do you remember all the passion fruit growing? Yeah, what okay. happened? Rats. <laughs> <laughs> it was so disgusting. The passion fruit attracted oh. more rats than anything I have ever grown in really? all the years I've been growing. We would sit on the patio, and that vine, because it was growing on that, it wasn't, well, it was freestanding. You had a screen. Yeah, like was a screen. A screen yeah. that was like 10 feet tall, covered in the vine. That thing would just rattle and. <laughs> That's like our arbor. The rats. <laughs> And it's it so, so nice to have a, it, a relaxing glass well, of wine on the patio with the rats. The rats were going <laughs> nuts. And what they would do is they would they would bite into the fruit and eat all the centers out. And so you would have all of these what looked like, you know, an empty eggshell oh, hanging uh, yeah. fruit hanging on the vine. So the the rat problem from that vine was so off the charts. 
we we got rid of it. We cut it down, threw it, put it in the put it in the green bins because we you know we couldn't compost. It was oh my god, the, it was so much. We just had to get rid of it because um, I, I didn't ha- I wasn't able to chip it. But it just it had to go away because of the rats. It, the problem with the rats was off the charts oh, from that. Point. Well, that's good to know because it was it was on the list. I'm just taking it off the list now. I'm all about making life easy. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know. I mean, there there is a certain point which you know, um, you know, your arbor is clearly for shade, and it would be nice if it produced a fruit, but maybe the shade's enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, another, another reader suggested just clipping some of the flowers off the vine when they start to flower, and then. But you know, those like especially Vitus californica is a hardy, hardy vine. I, I bet you clip the you clip the flowers, and it would make more. I mean, it. Good. Well, actually, what it you know what it would do if you clip the flowers off the you know the immature uh, grape clusters, mm-hmm. right? It would keep it in green growth production to wanting to constantly want to produce because that's how if you want to force a, if you want to force green growth on a grapevine, you just cut all the grape clusters off when they're immature. So then it makes more vine. It makes more vine. Okay. So you would you would end up making more vine, which would want to set more fruit. So then it's possible. I don't know this for a fact possible that you would have a part-time job <laughs> clipping grape clusters Well, yeah, it's, it's the whole work makes work thing. I mean, like, just the thought of, like, oh, now we have another chore. Every spring we have to go out and, you know, on our, on our step ladder, you know, ladder and stand there with our arms above our head, trimming, giving the grapevine a haircut because we want this grapevine, you know? And yep. it's like, if, if we're not going to eat the grapes, if we can't have the grapes, then why should we have the vine and and now you're you're painting an even worse scenario of chasing the grape vine all over i will say though those those wine grapes that came from the very strange nursery they're very good they were it took us a long i mean it is frustrating because it took us a long time to find a good um pierce Pierce disease disease resistance we had we had had other vines that people had told us were pierce resistant, which were not. So we had, we yeah. kept planting vines. The vines would die after a couple of years. We'd plant more. We didn't have any shade all that time. It was miserable. Finally, these guys take off. You know, uh, last year was the first year we had good shade coverage. Yeah. This year was the first year we had like a huge crop of grapes. And now, thank you, rats. Rat fest. <laughs> so, but you, but, but you said they're going after the Californica, not they the wine after grape. The other well, they one went too. after the other two, but there's fewer clusters of that. It's, it's just, not yeah, as it's just not So it was easier to kind of stay on top of. But, I mean, you know, I still, it's just gross. Yeah. Well, it is. No, no, I agree with you. It really is horrible. And, I mean, I'm sure you've, you know, how do you reduce the population of the rats? Yeah, you're not good. You know, and, you and you, you know, and I do have to agree with not putting out poisons because mm-hmm. then, you know, then you have secondary problems with, you know, birds of prey and other and our things. our local mountain eating. lions. Yeah. yeah. You know, then you've got, it's, you know, there's always something. I think it's important to be, you know, a, a nod towards to the greater good. But at the same time, you want your darn grapes. Yeah. I don't oh, know if we God. can have them. And they're, yeah. yeah, I know. And it's, it, and trying to, it's, oh. You know what? I I don't know. I don't know if I have much of a. <laughs> I don't know. Well, like you I, say, it's always something. You know, well, always, always something. it is always something. Yeah. I think one reason. I think one reason that we we don't have a huge problem. We have rats and mice. Don't get me wrong, but one reason that we don't have too much of a huge problem is that we actually have a very happy level of 
feral cats that live in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll do the trick, yeah. In fact, I've got two cats. It's really funny. I have two cats that specifically kind of live in the backyard and other cats that live in the front because I imagine they're territorial. I've got this beautiful black and white cat. He looks just like Sylvester, the cartoon cat, um, that hangs out in the back. They never, ever bother the chickens, ever. They have never once made an attempt to go after the chickens, even when I had young birds in there. But uh, I know that they keep the rat and mice population down. So I'm wondering, was there in the last year a huge animal control sweep of mm-hmm. wild cats in your, yard, well, in your you neighborhood? Know, we, you know, actually, we had some, you know, feral cats kind of come and go uh, and also neighbor cats. And we've actually lost some of those. I, you know, I don't know what happened. I mean, coyotes, with the coyotes maybe. But you yeah. know, there was a there was a there was the old gray battle scarred cat. Yeah. He's finally yeah. gone. He was ancient, and oh, he was he was so cool. And he probably did a lot. And then we had a neighbor's cat who spent a lot of time over here, and she I haven't seen for a while. And you know, maybe we just are lacking cats. Well, you know, I know there's a lot there's a lot of people who come you know who who. Uh, have complaints about feral cats because you know there's certain they things. They kill the songbirds. You know, they well, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, there is there is that. However, you know, anybody who has barnyard animals who has a barn has barn cats, feral cats. They serve. They do also serve a purpose. And I, you know, what I don't know. Somebody might have statistics on this. I don't think feral cats are at such a number that they're going to completely, you know, decimate the wild bird population. I mean, are we in fear of that? I don't know, because there have always been wild cats, and I I don't think we have birds going extinct, do we? Uh, You know, urban birds. I don't know. You tell me. I don't know. I mean, it's controversial. It's controversial. I mean, I think it's one of those things where we're here, we have agricultural Well, we're causing trouble because we're reducing biodiversity and and, and habitat for the birds. And then we bring our our serial killer cats with us, which just makes it all the worse, you know. But But. cats and agriculture go together. There's no doubt about that. Yes, definitely. Well, yeah. No, I mean, you know, they're, they're, like I said, you know, cats as well as dogs can serve a very useful purpose on a hobby farm, on a small farm, on any a large farm. You know, people would always, people, you know, over the years, people would always ask me, oh my gosh, how do I keep the squirrels and the raccoons and the this out of my yard? And I don't want to use poisons or traps. And I would say, get a dog. Yeah. It's yeah, that's it. Yeah. Our, get when, a dog. When we it's, had our dog, we had no raccoon problems. Yeah. You know, even it's, though he's he, not like he lived outside, but just his presence, they just stayed away. And exactly. now that he's gone, every critter, we're just under siege from all sorts exactly. of critters. Exactly. Yeah. Raccoons and possums. Yeah. And, and skunks. They're and, very small. And skunks. They're very smart yeah. animals. If they get chased out of a yard once or twice, they know to stay away from that yard. Yeah. And even so that way, you know, a dog doesn't necessarily have to live 24-7 outside. It can come in and, you know, go out. It, if it has, you know, is able to go in and out of a dog door is ideal. Um, but as long, but it still takes appropriate ownership of an animal to not keep, to not have a dog that sits outside all night and barks. Mm. That's a different story. That's not what I'm describing. Yeah. But, um, no, just letting our dog out, you know, to use the bathroom at night. He would run, you know, those late night runs were always the exciting ones. Yes. <laughs> and what? he would he would bolt out the door and chase something away from the yard, you know. And Exactly. My dog, Cody. Yeah, you know, everyone uh, was happy. <laughs> Cody did the best job of keeping the squirrels 
the skunks, the possums, the raccoons out of the yard. He always did the best job. And he's much slower now. <laughs> but him still walking out at night, he's he's a you know, an animal of prey. Mm. He'll still keep them out. He leaves and, his you know, his scent is around and Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So that's you know, that's um there uh, sometimes can be very nece- necessary to have to have a, a companion animal that that becomes sort of like, you know, a work dog keeps keeps those things at bay and keeps them out of the yard. Won't necessarily work for the rats because I don't you know, rats are up in the leaves on your arbor. Well we should put a we should put a feral cat house on the roof of our well, no, house the, overlooking the, the arbor. Especially so trained roof sit. chihuahuas was my <laughs> idea. Special breed of them. But you know what no, on, uh, on uh, aerial chihuahuas we will Aerial chihuahuas, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh my God <laughs> you you need to get yourself They would have safety a, lines. How about a how about a rat carrier, a rat on a, dr- carrier, yeah. on a drone. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> now we're talking <laughs> that it can operate itself. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. See this? These there's solutions. They're there. Oh, the yes. ideas. Well, uh, Craig, I want to thank you uh, for not only being on this podcast. I think we're going to have two podcasts out of this. So we have two weeks, and I want to thank you for that, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon. Uh, well, anything? Great. Oh, uh, before we go, uh, do you have a website or anything you want to promote? Or um, well, the, I don't have a website, but I I would want to promote. I have a, a Facebook page that's um, called the Kitchen at Winnetka Farms, and it's uh, an extension of you know obviously an extension of what I grow and what I do here. But it's it's it really zeroes in on what I do in the kitchen. From you know my experience in cooking, which you know I don't I don't even know if you know this. If, did you know I went to culinary school and was professionally trained as a chef? Did you know that? No, no I didn't know that. But we're not yeah. surprised. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's crazy. It's like what hasn't that guy done? Um, I've never been a car salesman. I've never done that. But I've done a lot of a nursery things. too. We didn't even talk about oh. that. That's a whole other conversation. But yeah, so. So I have this this the page uh, page the kitchen at Winneka Farms and it's uh, you know it shows what I do in the kitchen the the baking of the bread or the canning or you know or whatever it is sometimes I just post about like you know my favorite kitchen implements and try to educate people about one of my favorite things in the kitchen is you know carbon steel cookware and um, which uh, which is something I, I really need to do a big post about that and get people off of you know coated nonstick cookware that stuff's mm. garbage but anyway it's um, you know, it's, it's it's through that that I'll, you know, promote like classes that I do here and in bread baking classes. And, and, and I and back to the glacé free, I really want to do a class on that. I have to figure out how to do a class on a product that takes six weeks to make. Yeah. I'm not sure how to do that yet, but yeah. I think some people would be interested in that classic technique. It's going to be somebody who's really dedicated but it's something that I want to I want to pass that on because it's it's a technique worth knowing. So it's through that that page that I'll I'll I do all that sort of stuff. Cool. And we'll have links to that in the show notes for this show. So, right. so Craig, thank you so much. Yes, thank you, Craig. Thank you, thank you, and, and good luck on on Arborgeddon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really sorry. Uh. That was Craig Ruglas of Winnetka Farms. To connect with Craig, search for The Kitchen at Winnetka Farms on Facebook or check out the show notes for episode 57 of the Root Simple Podcast. To leave a question for the Root Simple Podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591 
or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Rootsimple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on our website. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening. Thank you.